Hey, you can turn with me to the book of Nahum. We are currently working our way through a series called The Hidden Prophets, and in this series we have been exploring uh, the group of books in the Old Testament that are known as the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of these books. Um, we are currently in number, entering into number six in our study, so we are, uh, at the end of today, we'll be halfway through this. Uh, Nahum chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 12 through 15 this morning. Let me read this to us. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The word of the Lord. The year was 1945, and something that seemed like a vast impossibility only months prior was coming to fruition, the fall of Nazi Germany. Cambridge historian Richard Evans tells us that two years into World War II, September 1941, Western Europe had been decisively conquered, and there were few signs of any serious resistance to German rule. German forces had overrun Greece. They had subjugated Yugoslavia. In North Africa, Rommel's brilliant generalship was pushing the British and allied forces eastward towards Egypt and threatening the Suez Canal. Above all, the invasion of the Germans into the Soviet Union in June 1941 had reaped stunning rewards with Leningrad, which is now called St. Petersburg, besieged by German and Finnish troops. Smolensk, Kiev were taken, and millions of Red Army troops, the Soviet troops, the Red Army troops were captured or killed in a series of vast encircling operations that brought the German forces within reach of Moscow. Surrounded by a girdle of allies from Vichy, France, and Finland to Romania and Hungary, and with the more or less benevolent neutrality of countries such as Sweden and Switzerland posing no serious threat, the greater German Reich seemed to be unstoppable in its drive for supremacy in Europe. The Germans had literally pushed out in all directions from Germany, and seemingly conquered everything in their path, and in the process killed millions and millions of people, uh, including the systemic and like horrific killing of Jews in concentration camps. At least six million were killed. But as heinous as the concentration camps were, it was really only the tip of the iceberg when it came to the people that the Germans killed. When they invaded the Soviet Union, by some estimates, they killed no less than 25 million Soviet civilians. Like just, like it's, it, when it reaches that number, it's, it's like not even real anymore. They killed everyone in their path. To give some context to that 25 million number, it's, it's as if the Germans in the Soviet Union alone killed everyone in New York City three times. I mean, it's just massive. 
They truly seemed unstoppable. Their brutality was just unmatched. And they were so dominant that it really seemed like Germany, it seemed impossible that Germany could ever be defeated. But taking, taking over the world requires a lot of resources. Like it requires a lot of manpower. It requires a lot of fuel. It requires a lot of munitions. And because Germany had opted to basically take on everyone, they came to the point where they were low on each of those things. So January 1945, just a few years later, 12 years into Hitler's reign, everything started to unravel as Allied forces, including Americans, defeated German troops in Western Europe, and Soviet armies were slowly but steadily making progress towards Germany from the east. And so in April 1945, 1.5 million Soviet troops surrounded Berlin. And from there, it was only a matter of time. Hitler killed himself on April 30th of 1945, and on May 8th, Germany unconditionally surrendered. Something that had seemed completely impossible had happened. Now, imagine if a biblical prophet had foretold such a thing. Imagine if a biblical prophet had declared that this grand defeat, which seemed virtually impossible, would actually happen. It would have seemed far-fetched. It would have seemed hard for people to believe. And yet that is exactly what the prophet Nahum of Elkosh did. Except it wasn't Germany that he spoke of. It was the third right of, of his day, Assyria, the Assyrians. And their Berlin was the city of Nineveh. And if Nineveh sounds familiar, it's because we've actually talked about it a lot in this study all the way back to the beginning. The very first book we looked at was the book of Jonah. And if you recall, like Nineveh was a primary character of sorts in the book of Jonah. Um, and in many ways, Nahum's short book, three chapters, his short book is kind of a sequel to the book of Jonah in some ways. In Jonah, God sends this prophet, Jonah, who doesn't want to go. He sends him to the city of Nineveh. A portion of the book is about his attempts to run away from the Lord's call to do what he wants to do rather than what God wants. But eventually he does come to Nineveh. He does preach repentance to the people of the city. And, and apparently, according to Jonah's book, they do repent. But their turn to the Lord did not really last long at all. So just to give us a little timeline of what's going on here, we're starting out almost 800 years before the time of Christ if we're talking about Jonah. Jonah is somewhere around 785 B.C. That's when he's going to Nineveh, preaching repentance to them. They seemingly grovel before the Lord, ask his forgiveness, and turn to him. However, somewhere around 40 years later, around 745 B.C., Assyria is back to their old tricks. Like Nineveh has turned back to the path that they were on before, and, and one significant king with a crazy name, Tiglath Pileser III, <laughs> Tiglath Pileser III becomes king of Assyria, and, and he's the one that really like begins expanding their territory. He's the one that even to this day, historians look back at Assyria and go, these guys were brutal. 
These guys were brutal. Like they would literally skin people alive and like hang them out to just strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. So Assyria is expanding their territory as we've talked about a lot at this time. The nation of Israel is divided in two early on here. The kingdom of Israel is in the north. The kingdom of Judah is in the south. At one time, that was all Israel, but because of a civil war, they were divided. And so Assyria starts to come against the northern kingdom of Israel. And as we saw uh, in recent weeks, they overtook Israel in 722 B.C. So Israel is destroyed, their capital city uh, is destroyed, the people, the tribes that are present in the north are, are just kind of scattered to the wind. And from there, they turn their focus, the Assyrians turn their focus to Judah, and they begin moving south, and they begin to start to try to overtake the land of Judah. And so this brings us up to Nahum. Nahum's writing 100 years after the fall of the north. He's writing in 630. He's a contemporary of Zephaniah, who we've been reading about over the last two weeks. He would have also been uh, present during the reign of King Josiah in Judah. Josiah was a righteous king, if you rem remember, and he instituted massive religious reforms in Judah to turn them away from pagan worship and back to the worship of God. Um, and so Nahum is writing into this situation where Israel has fallen Assyria has moved towards Judah and has taken some portions of Judah and has at times besieged the city of Jerusalem, their capital city, but they've never managed to overtake Jerusalem. Nahum, uh, whose name means comfort, though, declares a message of comfort to the people of Judah. And the message is this. Believe it or not, Assyria's days are numbered. This massive, brutal superpower will be gone. So Nahum begins this chapter, chapter 1, by describing the Lord in language that is common to the Old Testament. Look with me here in chapter 1. Uh, look at verse 3. Here's what he says. This may sound familiar. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This is very similar to what Jonah said, if you remember. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah explains why he ran away from the Lord. And what he says is, God, I know who you are. And he repeats these words that are repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Like the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God, I know who you are, and I know that if I go to Assyria, if I go to Nineveh and preach this message of repentance, you are the kind of God who will forgive them despite the things that they've done, despite their violence, right? despite their brutality. And, and Jonah doesn't want to see them repent. Like these are, these are Israel's enemies. He knows the heinous things that they've done. So he has no desire to see the Lord save them or forgive them. Jonah says, I know that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that's why I ran away from you, God. However, in the sequel to Jonah, Nahum adds a little bit 
to Jonah's words by inserting the fact that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He's had grace for Nineveh, right? Like he has sent prophets to them. He has called them to repentance. We learned in Jonah that he cares deeply for the city. Like he tells Jonah, why would I not care about these people? Why would I not care about this massive city? Do you think I only care about Israel? Do you think I only care about Hebrews? No, no, no. That's not what's going on. I I care deeply about these people. But much like Israel made a golden calf after the Lord saved them from Egypt, right? Nineveh does the same thing. They also abandoned the Lord. They turned back to their own road of sin, and they, they went back to worshiping the gods that they worshiped before. So starting in verse 9, God, through Nahum, begins directly addressing Nineveh. Verse 9 What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. This worthless counselor who plotted evil against the Lord is probably a reference to one of Assyria's kings. Like, could you imagine a prophet talking about Nazi Germany and not on some level referencing Hitler, right? Not referencing kind of the head of the beast, like the leader of all of this. This is a similar type figure here in Nahum. But then suddenly in verse 12, where we picked up in our text today, verse 12, suddenly Nahum turns from from speaking to Assyria, seemingly, and he turns and he begins speaking to Judah. Verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Assyria was probably at their pinnacle when Nahum is writing. Like this is like 1931-32 or 41-42 in terms of Germany for Nahum. They have a massive army. They have great wealth, great ability. They've conquered a great deal of territory. So Nahum's prophecy seems like this pie-in-the-sky type thing, right? How, how could this even be possible that the yoke of Assyria, who, who they destroyed our kinsmen to the north, and, and they've taken away land from us, and they're kind of knocking on the door of Jerusalem, how is it possible that something like this could happen? But, but then verse 14, Nahum turns back, back to Nineveh and begins talking to the Assyrians again. He says, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut you off. The carved image and the metal image, I will make your grave for you are vile. The carved image, the metal image, talking about the false gods that they're worshiping. So there's this back and forth thing that's going on here. Nahum addresses Nineveh, and then he addresses Judah, and then he addresses Nineveh again. And implied within Nahum's message to Judah is this, do not fear. Do not fear, because the Lord has given a commandment concerning Nineveh. You will be afflicted no more. This is what is to come. There's a significant theme that runs throughout Scripture, And that runs throughout our lives as well. And it's called the fear of man. 
We first see this perhaps in the story of Exodus, where the Israelites come to the border of the promised land for the first time, and before launching into the land of Canaan and fighting all of the different tribes that live within that land, what do they do? They send in spies into the land. They send in a group of spies to just check it out and to come back and report back. And and the spies come back and they say, there is absolutely no way. There's no way we can win in battle. The land is filled with giants, they say. So despite what they had seen the Lord do up to that point, they watched the Lord destroy the army of Egypt, right? They watched the Lord provide food for them miraculously in the wilderness, They watched the Lord free them from 400 plus years of slavery. And yet they get to the border of this promised land, which God has said is yours. And I'm going before you and I will fight for you. They allow their fear of man to guide their decision making rather than resting in the power of God. You could jump ahead to Peter. In the New Testament, Jesus had been arrested. Peter had sort of trailed behind the party that arrested him. He finds himself in a little courtyard. There's a fire going and a slave girl says, hey, weren't you with them? Aren't you one of them? And and Peter, who, who has seen so much in his time with Jesus. And Peter, who famously said, you are the Christ. The son of the living God in that moment when that little girl says, aren't you one of them? He goes, I don't, I don't know him. What? what? No, I just wandered in here. I don't. What's going on? The fear of man. He allows that to control his actions despite everything that he's seen up to this point. It's amazing how much we underestimate what God is capable of. It's amazing how afraid we can be of other people and what they can do and how unafraid of God we can be. This also plays out in the way that we're inclined to put our hope in political leaders or in military might. In the same way that we fear man more than God, we're also inclined to maybe trust man more than God as well. To put our hope in man more than in God as well. Because man just seems more real. Look at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. So this chapter concludes with a vision of gospel, like good news coming down from the mountains. And I think in this instance, this good news is what Nahum has just said, that Nineveh will be cut off. But but then notice the instructions that he gives here. Two things. Judah, keep your feasts. And two, Judah, fulfill your vows. So so why, why this instruction? First, uh, what was the purpose of the Hebrew feasts? Think about probably the most famous, the Feast of Passover. What's the purpose of Passover? Right? The purpose was that the people would be reminded 
of what God had done for them, right? The ways that God had saved them from Egypt, the ways that God had destroyed the army of Pharaoh, the ways that God had provided for them in the wilderness. It's meant to, as we say often, to remind their mind and their heart of who God is, what he's capable of, and how he's proven himself to be good and faithful. That's what the feasts are all about. But, but then second, in light of what you're learning and being reminded of by keeping the feasts, also keep your vows to the Lord. Like don't, don't just like engage in some kind of religious ritual. Don't just kind of walk through the motions or engage with it as if it's just some sort of intellectual endeavor or just some just remembering back as, as if it's just a history lesson. No, no, no. Like as you're remembering these things and how good God is and how faithful God is, remember that he's capable of defeating any enemies. Like their size, their power, how much land they have, their wealth, those things are of no consequence to God. Remember the Lord's covenant with you, right? These, these vows that have been made. Remember this marriage that you're in with the Lord and be faithful to him. And, and for us, we're, per, we're perhaps inclined to look at this and go, like maybe the, like there's some interesting history here maybe in, in Nahum, but this is literally something that happened over 2,000 years ago. So, so what in the world does this have to do with my life? Like, what, what bearing does this have for me? And, 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 and if that's something you think, that there's nothing here for you, I, I honestly think you're wrong about that. Because as is so often the case with Scripture, what we see happening physically in the text and then practically in history is, is pointing the way to an even greater reality that is coming to fruition in and through Christ. In the same way that the feast reminded Judah of God's power and God's faithfulness, this story reminds us of Jesus who has taken on the one who is ultimately behind the Assyrians and the Germans, right? He, he's taken on the great enemy, and not only that, he's taken on the things that truly enslave us, like sin and death. We're not talking about human armies here. Scripture says our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, like, like, like if, that, if that's who you think we're fighting, like you're missing it. It's, it's greater and bigger than that. We're talking about like forces of darkness and, and we can't even fully see them and we, we don't even fully understand them. We're talking about the very thing that separates us from God and, and calls us, beckons us to trust man more than him. And so a question for us this morning is, like, what is, what is the great temptation that you face? What is the enemy that is kind of constantly waiting outside your door? That's besieging you? Like, what is the sin that threatens to overtake you? This is what the Assyrians were doing to Jerusalem. They besieged it. They cut off food supply. They cut off water. All that kind of stuff. It's like they're knocking at the door. 
But what is that in your life? The Apostle John says that if you say there isn't anything like that in your life, you've deluded yourself. Like, it's it's not true. Like, you've turned a blind eye to it. And yet coming across the mountains is this gospel hope. Like coming across the mountains is this good news message that sin and death will be cut down and will pass away and that you will be afflicted no more and that that the yoke of sin will come off you and your bonds will be burst apart. It's no coincidence that Jesus uses this language of, of his yoke. That, that we are removing this enslavement, this, this, this leash that ties us to sin. And it's not like we're, we're yokeless from there on. It's that we're, we're now becoming enslaved to a new master, to use Paul's language. And that even though that language to us sounds negative and terrible, it's because in our world, there is no such thing as good slavery. Right, Because the only slavery we know about is slavery that has been marred by sin and human failing and power and dominance over others. And yet somehow, through Christ, we are being offered this opportunity to be slaves to God, to be slaves to righteousness. And somehow that's like the best news that we could ever hear. That this new yoke that you take on is a yoke that is like a non-burden. It's light. It's not oppressive. It's not domineering. It's not holding power over you. It's not coercive. It's gracious and forgiving and self-sacrificing. God has done this and is doing this through Christ. But the question is not simply, do you believe that? The question really is, is that, is that really your hope? Right? Is that, is that truly the thing that you long for in this life? In, in the midst of the brokenness of our world? You know, a world where there very likely will be another Germany that rises up at some point. If there isn't already. Right? People doing horrible things to other people. It's not just do you believe it. Is is this really the thing that your future hangs on? Is it the thing that your life truly revolves around? Is it the thing that you're pushing all the chips in on? Or are you still holding out hope that salvation will actually come from other people? Or material things? Or other like human endeavors? If we're being honest, many of us do well to remember the words of the desperate father in Mark 9. Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. I think Nahum gives us a prescription for rooting our hope in Christ. First of all, keep the feast. 
keep the feast. What are the things that are present in your life that continually like bring you to this place of rootedness in him? Like what are the things that allow you to like center your very existence on the truth of the gospel of Christ? You know, for the Jews, it was all about the feasts themselves, celebrating Passover, celebrating the Feast of Booths, Rosh Hashanah, all of these things. But for you, what is that? How are you daily putting yourself in the position of being centered in God's truth through things like prayer, through actually studying his word, reading his word? I think a big part of this is connecting with Christ's body, the church. I think this is a big part of why the church exists in general. It's not just so that you could come here on a Sunday morning and and hear a Bible message. It's about connecting with each other because there is encouragement when a group of people for whom their hope truly is in Christ and not in the things of this world, when those people come together, the, the challenge of that and, and, and sometimes the burden of living in this world becomes lessened when, when you see that like we're bearing one another's burdens in the process. When we worship the Lord together, when, when we come to his table and, and literally celebrate together the Passover, right? That, that because of Christ's death, sin and death are removed, that, like, that he's passed over us because of the blood of Christ. Like all of these things we can engage as rituals, just things we do because it's the church and it's what, you know, it's what we do every week, or we can engage them as things that we desperately need in order to keep our minds and our hearts centered on the truth of the gospel, on the truth of Christ. Keep the feasts. And then allow those practices to catapult you into a life of keeping your vows. Right? Not just to your spouse, but keeping your vows to God. Jesus, as we talk about every week when we celebrate communion, has established this covenant through his body and his blood. He's established this covenant that says that even though you are undeserving of any kind of grace, even though you're undeserving of being reconciled to the Father, because of what Jesus has done, because of his sacrifice, because of his body and blood, a way has been made for that to happen. And and what he's asking of us is not just that we intellectually assent to that, as we say often. What he's asking of us is that we truly embrace that in faith. And true faith is, is like when our allegiance and trust is in him. Not just when we espouse something, but when it truly is the thing that shapes our lives and guides us. Let us keep our vows and then sit back and watch as the enemies of sin and fear and worry and anxiety are systematically exterminated, like progressively. The, the picture that Scripture paints is that through this process of sanctification, while, 
while our world is still broken at the moment, that we, because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, are becoming more like Jesus because we're daily devoting ourselves to him and his way. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I find that to be incredibly compelling. Like whenever I meet people and it's clear that that is their existence, that this is not just something that they say, it, it really is how they live. For me, like there is nothing more encouraging. There's nothing that makes me want to be better than, than seeing that manifested in the life of another person. And my guess is the same thing is true for you. You've encountered those people where it's like, man, there, there really is something here with this person that's just different. And, and, and for whatever reason, they don't seem to be bogged down with like the worry and the anxiety that, that I'm bogged down with. And, and there's, there's got to be like, a, I, like I want that. Like I, I look at who Christ is and, and I want that. And even when I see it imperfectly displayed, in the life of another sinful person, even when I see glimpses of it, it's like, oh man, it's amazing. But it's not easy. We have to be diligent. We have to be disciplined. And we desperately need each other as well. Coming over the mountains is this good news that, that things in your life that seem insurmountable, and it seems impossible to even imagine them not having the hold on you that they do, that those things could be gone and will be gone eternally. And it truly is a thing of wonder. And it's humbling. And so let us go to him this morning in prayer and in humility and just thank him. Just where you are this morning, take a few moments in silence and consider the ways that the Lord has freed you from bondage to sin. And consider even the things you confessed earlier and the reality that those things don't have to be persistent. Like they don't have to be this weekly confession. They can truly become things of the past through his spirit and his work. Take a few moments. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you for the ways that even in this story, this prophecy from well over 2,000 years ago, that we see a picture of what you are capable of and what you have done for us through Christ. Thank you for the freedom that you offer. Thank you for the easy yoke that you desire to lay on us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who receive it with joy. 
who are eager to turn away from the things of this world and to embrace life in your kingdom. And Father, I'm struck this morning as we talk about countries and powers, empires, that ultimately what you're doing through Christ is, is not just saving us so that we can go to heaven, but that, Lord, you're, you're actually bringing a new kingdom. Father, that you're doing away with, with all of these earthly empires, no matter how powerful they are, and this kingdom of God is infiltrating and, and will ultimately be all and in all. And even though that is on some level mysterious to us, I, I pray, Father, that it would be something that we would desire greatly to be with you in your country, in, in the realm where you reign and rule completely and where the enemies that we face are gone and are done away with. So, Father, help us in keeping the feasts in our lives. Help us in finding joy and comfort and camaraderie and solidarity and community with each other. Help us, Father, to center our lives on your truth by, by not reaching for our phone first thing in the morning, but instead rooting ourselves in your word and in prayer. And may that truly transform our being. Not just puffing us up intellectually or giving us more knowledge, God, but that, that it truly would be the thing that we find our hope and our joy in. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.